Hello and welcome to the Sea of Startups, where we dive into the stories behind the startups in Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin, Managing Partner of Indelible Ventures. Now, if you're a founder or funder looking to learn more about what drives the startups in Southeast Asia, this podcast is for you. We're about to sit down with founders to uncover the unique insights into the origins and motivations behind launching their startups. We'll uncover the stories behind the struggles, the ups, the downs guided from the view of an entrepreneur. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's show. All right. I am very happy today because my guest is Wei Hong Fong, the co-founder of StoreHub. For those of you who don't know, StoreHub started as a POS system, but has since evolved into an all-in-one platform for retailers and restaurants to automate and grow their businesses. They are currently serving over 15,000 businesses across Southeast Asia. Awesome. Thank you very much for being here, Wei Hong. Thanks, Kevin, for having me here. Very cool. So the, the the starting point that I do every question I talk to a founder, so I always want you to take me back. Tell me what is the founding story? What is the origin of the idea and what got you on the entrepreneurial journey in the first place? Yeah, those are two quite interesting questions, I would say. I'm, so I, I'm originally Malaysian, but I spend most of my life um, prior to stop anyway outside of Malaysia. So when I was 12, uh, I was shipped off to Singapore by my mom to uh, to study in Singapore. I had a, I was an ASEAN scholar, they call it. So basically the government paid for everything. Um, but I was not a very good scholar. So I was always bottoming out my class, um, playing too much computer games, almost lost my scholarship for hacking the computers because they were charging us, <laughs> you know, an arm and a leg to use it. And um, and we uh, and we just, you know, decided to break the system so we didn't have to pay that, that much money. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, so after my four years there, it was some of the worst years of my life. Um, you know, they offered me a scholarship to do, to kind of go to, to college, but, um, you know, my mom was like, hey, I think, uh, Singapore is not a place for rebels like you. It's better. I ship you off to Australia, the land of rebels. Um, <laughs> and so I did, I did go to Australia. I went to Melbourne, went to Melbourne university. Uh, the patterns repeated. I was also playing too many computer games there. Uh, I actually ended up failing five subjects at university. Um, I did a very kind of like non-conventional uh, degree for an Asian student in Melbourne. I did an arts degree uh, in philosophy, well, history and philosophy of science and media and comms. So the majority of my classmates were non-Asian. They were mostly local Australians, uh, as opposed to say, if you did a commerce degree or law degree or engineering degree, so you know, like tons and tons of like foreign students in there. Uh, so I graduated, albeit one semester late, because I failed about five subjects at university, <laughs> playing too many computer games, uh, and kind of like stumbled into entrepreneurship from there. So I, I, I like to call myself a bit of an accidental entrepreneur. I, I know a lot of people these days, they they have aspirations to be an entrepreneur. I, I, did, I didn't. Um, I thought I would just go, you know, work in marketing in some tech firm or something like that. But, uh, you know, after graduating, I... I wanted to do like that gap year thing or at least a gap couple of months but you know asian families don't do that apparently and so <laughs> i was uh, instead asked to help out my my uncle in uh kind of like he has this little gift store in the, in the eastern suburbs of melbourne and, and decided to help him out to uh list a few things on ebay and, and write descriptions take photos 
uh, one thing led to another. Um, that actually became a full-fledged business. So, uh, you know, in that first year, I decided to kind of just plow myself you know, straight into it. Um, and we grew that business from the first to the second year of, you know, about $300,000 of revenue in the first year to about $1.8 million of revenue in the second year. And it was, it suddenly changed everyone's perception, right? Or the whole family's like, oh my God, why Hong? Like, you know, it was very cute on the first year. And then the second year, suddenly, you know, you're, you're growing this crazy business. Um, and, and over a couple of years, that grew to about $5 million of revenue, pre-VC, pre-angel investors or any of that sort, just cash, you know, good old cash flow funded, sell more next month than you, you did last <laughs> month, kind of like business and, and you know, and grow it from there. Uh, so yeah, kind of pretty much how I, I got into entrepreneurship. It was my first job, quote unquote. I never actually been to a job interview before in my life, uh, and uh, and after I kind of like left that business because I, I kept fighting with my uncle at the time about not involving family, and he kept trying to involve more and more family. And I was like, you know, eventually my 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 aunt, my my you know my aunt, my aunt sister, and and all kinds of random people from the family started getting involved. And I'm like, no, no, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so I, I left, uh, I went to Shanghai to study Chinese, um, because, you know, even though I'm natively in Chinese, I look Chinese, I, I couldn't speak the language before. Mm. So I wanted to fix that, uh, did a lot of travel. Um, interesting, I did some work for the Chinese government as well. So that was really fun. I get to travel a lot. I get to meet all kinds of interesting people. One of the interesting people I met was, uh, Jack Ma's right-hand man, uh, at the time, uh, so this amazing, super smart rocket scientist from previously from NASA, uh, and uh, and I learned so much about you know how technology played such a critical role in, in China's transformation. Uh, and as kind of as kind of doing all of that, I I, I end up in this city called Fuzhou in the southeast of China. Mm-hmm. Uh, met a retailer who was running a chain of female lingerie retail stores. Um, just implemented a new system. He was like, "Hey, Wai Hong, why don't you have a look at some of these things I've implemented?" Uh, I was pretty flabbergasted by how shitty the systems were. Uh, and uh, I was just telling him, dude, you know, you've got some really crappy stuff here. Uh, how much do you pay for it? And it was like a couple hundred grand. And that got me really intrigued because I was quite surprised at you know, how, you know, when I looked around and did some, some of my research, how little technology or at least affordable, good cloud-based type, you know, technology mm-hmm. was available for bricks and mortar retailers around the world. Um, in the US, this was in 2012, there was kind of like a bit of a trend taking off at the time for iPad point of sales, mm-hmm. um, but not much elsewhere. And so that was what got me you know, thinking about, well, where is the future of commerce? Where does retail go from here? You know, yeah, sure. I came from an e-commerce background, selling all kinds of stuff online. In fact, the rhetoric was always, we will destroy those bricks and mortar guys. And, mm-hmm. and we did uh, in Australia. But eventually, I, I kind of like imagine a world where, where commerce just becomes not, it's not binary, right? It's not, it's not E versus non-E. It's, it's basically just commerce powered by technology. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, I had this idea, I told everyone about the idea, uh, eventually met my co-founder who was very intrigued partially by the idea, but more so by my philosophy of life and the way I thought about, you know, what businesses were about. And, uh, and we started Storehop out of my apartment together with this vision of just really, you know, um, supporting and enabling businesses to kind of like work through the challenges of running a business uh, as they, you know, as technology, you know, intersects every part of whatever they do. Uh, so we started out of my apartment in Shanghai, decided to move back to Southeast Asia to focus on the market here. Um, and here we are. So that's kind of a long one, but uh, that was our origin story. 
So you had some tech uh, capability to begin with, because I mean, if you're if you're hacking the system at the at the school in Singapore, I'm assuming your technical capabilities are are, are pretty high, or, or or am I mistaken? Yeah, absolutely. I was a super geek when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> I started using computers when I was like four or five years old because okay. my mom was a programmer. And I mean, imagine the early 90s, uh, very few people actually had access to computers, but I had one at home. Right. Uh, so I was I was doing all kinds of stuff uh, with computers from a very, very early age. In fact, my I, I used to tell my mom, you know, hey, mom, you know, when I grow up, I'll be the world's greatest hacker and I'll marry a computer. Um, <laughs> obviously, that didn't happen. But, you know, they're, they're kind of like, you know, a bit of an insight to to how much uh, how much of a geek I was. Well, instead of a hacker, maybe you can call yourself a growth hacker because you have been able to successfully scale a business. So maybe it's just a different type there. Yeah, yeah I think I think the the principles of hacking and the way you approach things that that definitely has many uh, carry on benefits into other areas of life. So let, let me ask you. So so you met you met your co-founder when you were in Shanghai. How how long did you guys know each other before you decided to launch a business together? Because I I know a lot of founders always struggle with the co-founder sort of like who do I bring on? When do I bring them on? That kind of stuff. Yeah, ours was a really kind of a fairy tale story in itself. Um, so I told that, like I said, I was very liberal with ideas. So I told everyone about my idea. Uh, and one of my close friends connected me to Chong Yu, who, my, who is my co-founder today, mm-hmm. uh, who had just left Microsoft. And she had, you know, she's a bit of a superstar. And, and you know, so after she left, everyone's like trying to court her to, you know, to go and join their startup, right? Um, but for some reason or another, she didn't feel, didn't feel very interested. And, and so happened that day that she caught up with my friend, uh, there was a Christmas party for, for kind of like tech startups, mm-hmm. uh, in the tech community in, in Shanghai that, was, that I was invited to. And my friend was like, hey, you know, Chongyu, why don't you go to this party? You know, the guy I told you about, uh, Wai Hong, he's going to be there. And, and Chongyu decided for some reason or another to go, even though she always says she's a bit of an introvert and she doesn't like to go for parties, but for some reason or another, she turned up. And we just talked for like three or four hours. Um, and it was just like that kind of connection that you don't, typically find just randomly it's just kind of like really special and and so that happened um and a week later i got this email from showing you saying hey why hong uh you know i don't i really enjoyed our conversation i really resonated with a lot of stuff you're talking about here's uh you know don't know how we're going to start but let's try to do something together Right. And uh, and then she lists out her credentials. She won two national programming competitions in China. She was the you know president of the women that work at Microsoft, top one percent of employees, on and on and on. I'm like, you know, this person really knows how to set up her credentials. But uh yeah, so I think that's 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 essentially how it happened. And and of course, um I mean I think we're both very much dive hit long hit on first kind of people. And so we were like, okay, let's just have a go at this. And and we did. Yeah. yeah. And so settling on the idea of StoreHub itself, were, were, there, were there iterations along the way? Were there different ideas that you were bouncing around? Or was it like laser focus, let's go straight into POS system? Um, prior to StoreHub, I had like 20 ideas. Um, so in between my previous business and my next business, I had all kinds of ideas. Yeah. I, one of the funniest ideas I, I, I'm thankful I let go of. Uh, was uh, an idea for a subscription condom business. It was kind of like, it was about the time where, I'm not sure if you've ever remember this, there's this group called Dollar Shave Club. And yeah, got, I do remember that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the subscription business craze. And I was like, man, if you could do Dollar Shave Club. <laughs> but but yeah, you know, um, uh, Storehub as an idea, 
because the core idea was so kind of like large in itself already, right? It was in, it was surely it was in, surely it was inspired by this, you know, uh, retailer in Fuzhou. Uh, but at the same time, it it drew from uh, larger ideas that I, I had been inspired from guys like the you know the Jack Ma's right hand man mm-hmm. and, and understanding how technology companies played such a critical role in China's own transformation, understanding how massive social issues like trust, massive, uh, you know, like infrastructural issues, uh, supporting the small, how important it is for, for, for us to build platforms for small businesses as opposed to large businesses or rich businesses, um, the, the importance of the small guys and the fringe guys. These concepts were, were very much uh really core to to kind of the idea of store hub so as opposed to saying hey let's be a point of sale it was sure. these ideas that was what store hub was about and so to be quite fair over the years it's not changed too much like the core mm-hmm. concepts of what we thought about back then sure the expressions changed i mean we started out very small with point of sale but at the end of the day that was not the idea the idea was much bigger than that we just knew that we had to start somewhere small and somewhere core mm-hmm. um, and and i think uh I can quite comfortably say not not to not to say there's anything to brag about. It's just that just that it's just one of those ideas that started out this big anyway, and so I think that was the so that didn't change surprisingly. I think a lot of startups and entrepreneurs have ideas that have evolved over time. Mm-hmm. Ours didn't really, but yeah. Okay. Okay. And did you see, did you initially start and build and start selling uh, when you, after the move back to Southeast Asia, or did you give it a go while you were still in Shanghai as well? Nah, man, you got to build and sell at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like literally as we were building in Shanghai, we were trying to sell, okay. you know, with whatever, I mean, you didn't even have to finish the build before you started selling. You just, sure, just sure, sure. get a bunch of slides and go sell. Uh, we, you know, we sucked at it. Like, uh, I, my, my Chinese was six months old. Yes. I was probably <laughs> the most diligent student I've ever been studying Chinese in Shanghai, but, um, uh, still it was, it was rough. Right. And, and okay. uh, we, we built a product that was somewhat usable after about six or six months or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually wrote about 30% of the code, something I'm still very proud of today. Um, and, uh, and I think that the Malaysia kind of move was also somewhat accidental. You know, I just, told my co-founder, hey, let's go to Malaysia because I've got a friend. Um, I'm not sure if you've been around in the tech ecosystem long enough to know Nazrin, uh, Nazrin Hassan, the late Nazrin Hassan. Yeah. Uh, so I met Nazrin even before Stohab at a APAC event while I was doing some work for the Chinese government in Singapore. And he was one of the most inspirational Malaysians I've ever met mm-hmm. to this day. He's still uh, you know, a strong dear friend. Um, and and uh I, I remember kind of like saying, hey, you know, let's go visit Malaysia. I've got a good friend Nazrin there and he's such a champion for, for the ecosystem. We could learn something about, you know, a thing or two about what's going on there. And that's how we turned up in Malaysia, spoke to Nazrin, end up speaking to a bunch of other friends who were running FMB businesses, retail mm-hmm. businesses. Um, and then felt, hey, man, we've got more traction here in this one week than we have had in the last six months trying to, you know, launch these things in Shanghai. And that's how kind of like the, the, the shift of focus happened. Okay. Okay. And uh, then, then, so this is this is back in what year? What 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 year is this when you moved back to Malaysia? Twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen. Okay. So you're you're starting to build out. At what point did you say let's let's look to expand into another country market? What was what was the, what was that kind of stepping stone? Because I'm I'm picturing and and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a lot of face to face or direct selling, uh, calling up restaurants, calling up stores, and 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 basically doing a more sales led approach. Yeah, 
yes and no. So a lot of businesses that that do what we do, do a lot of um, uh, door-to-door sales, uh, especially back in the day, mm. we warmed a few pioneers in marketing-led sales where we did a lot of digital marketing into a very uh, intensely uh, designed uh, inbound process for sales uh, and as opposed to an outbound process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that system uh, worked really well. And, and I think post our seed round, just prior to our Series A, uh, we, we were able to s- prove that that system could scale. And because of that, that was kind of what led us to just to, to expansion. You know, we did we ran ads in every country in Southeast Asia. We picked up the phone and we talked to these customers that we were, or at least the leads that we were getting in, you know, in every country. And we did a math and figure out, okay, these are the countries we want to go into because unit economics makes sense for us mm-hmm. there. And that's how we started expanding to the Philippines and Thailand. Um, this was just before our series A uh, in 2017. So so it was very much driven by an understanding that we have a system that could scale and it could work in multiple countries. And regardless of whether or not, you know, you had to do face-to-face meetings or whatever, we knew that we could generate leads. And if we could generate leads, we can get sales. So I think for me, even though I'm a tech founder, I'm very much a sales system kind of guy. I love my processes. I love my systems. Yeah. Okay. And the, these expansions, since they happened right before the Series A, was was this was this kind of a requirement in order to get those investors interested in jumping on board to see a multi-market company? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, most of the investors uh, that we were talking to were not Malaysian uh, for the very simple mm-hmm. reason. In the early days, oh, Malaysian VCs, oh my God. But uh, <laughs> there's, there's not there's not so many of them, to be honest with you. I mean, even if you're talking present day, it's uh, you, re- you really have to start, especially when you're start talking about larger sums of money. You got to go next door uh, yeah. elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, to be fair, Credo you know, was one of the few Malaysian VCs that came in on Series A. But again, still, I think mostly because small check sizes, right? I think mm-hmm. that was the, the challenge. And so... Uh, we were very clear. In fact, we, we we've been talking with uh, VCs regionally from even at the seed round, at the seed yeah, round. Right? So, okay. because we were talking to people from from early early days, we knew that hey, if you want to close your Series A, you need to have a large enough market. You need to be mm-hmm. you need to have demonstrated that your product and your company can scale across larger markets. And you can talk about the regional story, but if you don't have a regional presence, it's not gonna it's gonna fly, right? So, yeah, I think that's yeah. essentially something we just recognize you needed to have. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really smart uh, and insightful thing as well, is that you were actually building the relationships with some of these potential funders well before you needed, you were actually getting ready to ask anything. So you were able to get insight. You probably were keeping the conversations going, staying top of mind for them so that they could see the progress. So by the time you ask, it's it's a lot easier. You're not doing that uphill battle all at the end, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes and no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, absolutely, absolutely right, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's never easy, but uh, like small, yeah. small, small, like things like that, the process orientation, the the sales uh, process in you. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, I was like, you know, we did, we did like a hundred calls, like 50 different investors, we didn't mm. pitch to whatever for the Series A. And then the one guy we didn't pitch to came and gave us money, right? Like, I mean, that was <laughs> basically what happens, right? Like, it's ridiculous. The one guy that... Uh, I think we did one call completely not interested ghosted us for a bit yeah. and then a couple months later as we thought oh shit we're going to just like not raise anything mm. they come knocking on our door within two weeks boom term sheet right so it's it's kind of like it, it is you got to do the work 
and then yeah. you just get a pre, you get lucky. Like it's kind of like the both, you know what I'm saying? It's it, it's not either or. It's yeah. Okay. So let, let's let's jump back to this international expansion. So when when you did it, you initiated out with doing the marketing approach, seeing how the leads did. At what point did you say let's put bodies on the ground in market? We put bodies on the ground straight away. Like straight away. In order for the system to work, you need a bodies on the ground. Okay. Um, just because it was marketing driven funnel, yeah. you know, funnel yeah. it, it doesn't mean that you don't need bodies on the ground. You still need bodies on the ground for, for two purposes. One, you need to service the customers and two, mm-hmm. you know, you need to close the deals. And, and I think we're still at a stage, even to today, that that um that requires kind of like, you know, that kind of approach. Okay. So then let me ask you on the talent side then. So like when you're expanding into a new market, there's obviously challenges around selecting the proper talent, training the talent up, getting them onboarded, all of those characteristics. How did you tackle that with the first market? And now that you're in several other countries, how has it evolved since that beginning point? How do you tackle that? By literally falling down and picking yourself up again and falling down and picking yourself up again. I mean, literally... Like yeah. you'll be tackled when you're trying to tackle <laughs> stuff. I mean, we've we've refreshed our 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 Philippines and Thai teams two or three times now. Okay, like complete like complete change of people. Um, so it it is quite interesting. Like I guess that journey figuring out. Okay, you know, uh, the nuances. Uh, you know, which markets, which cultures. How do you assess better, right? In some cultures, they they're just brilliant speakers. They just they know how to talk and sell themselves up. So you can't just like, you know, because in, in Malaysia, if someone talks well, they're generally quite good. Mm. But <laughs> I mean, they can articulate themselves well. But of course, you're gonna miss out gems on the guys that don't talk well. And and, and so so you're dealing with very different um, types of problems in every market where where you have to figure out okay, who are the doers who are the talkers how much weight do you kind of attribute what processes do you put them through to really assess um and, and so i think i think the expansion in those markets have been really challenging on that front I mean, a lot of people tell us you need to find that country manager first then you can then you then you're sorted um it's not so easy i think when you're not a heavily funded company it's not so easy to just dangle big carrots in front of people and, and then get a country manager that works oftentimes um it's 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 a lot of ground on the ground work and and so i think for us um that was our kind of our story i know some people have been very successful at you know sure. doing the launchers and, and country managers but kind of like uh went the route of building operational and sales teams uh, mm-hmm. and i like scale from there yeah, I mean, no matter what, no matter what startup, and after everyone that I've talked to, there's no one size fits all approach. It's it's re- it's really trying to navigate and find your way. And I lo- I love the like fall down, pick yourself up, fall down, pick yourself up because it is kind of trial and error. It's just mm-hmm. can you iterate and do it fast enough at a pace to where you're not just kind of burning and burning and burning, following down the wrong pathway. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, and so and so and so then. Going from those expansions, are you just in the in the core major cities, or are you kind of multi-city within those markets? So, is it like Bangkok and Manila, or are you expanded further beyond there? I would say like the majority of our customers are, are in major cities, but we have like maybe about thirty percent of our our customers outside of the major cities. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's quite a sizable footprint outside of of uh, you know Metro Manila or Bangkok or so on and so forth. Okay. 
Okay. So I, I, I got to ask because FNB business, so you, you, you expand back in what it, what is that 2017 and then coming up into 2020 through 2022, where like the, just the entire world shut down for, for a bit of time, obviously with FNB and retail, it was a difficult time. How did you guys navigate that? I, I, if I'm not mistaken, there were a few product feature launches and so forth to keep people up and running. How was the pandemic period for you guys? guys yeah the pandemic was super rough um and our response to it was i think the moment the first lockdown was announced was mm. to immediately think okay how are customers going to fare no dining people are not going to survive right and so we recognized at the same time that a lot of the food delivery platforms two things one was they would not be able to onboard the, the surge of restaurants overnight and the restaurants don't have the kind of, uh, you know, they don't, they can't wait, right, for, for you to kind of like give mm-hmm. them that platform. And two, uh, obviously, if 100% of sales is going through these platforms, it's it's not going to be sustainable for these restaurants. And so I think I think for us, we needed to figure out a way to, to, to sort that out. And so we, we launched a product called Beep um, for delivery uh, for a lot of our restaurant customers that really took off. Uh, and of course, we also really had you know, the analogy of falling down, picking yourself up. I mean, that happened as well because we're not a heavily funded company. We're just mm-hmm. a small little tiny software company that decided to just support businesses in doing direct you know, delivery to their customers. And that's a really challenging problem that, you know, his, generally speaking, you've got these massive super companies with hundreds of millions of dollars and many years that had you know, the, the time to figure out how to do it. Um, but we did it. And, and, and I think it... Uh, we we lost nearly sixty percent or seventy percent of our software revenue within a, the first couple of months of the pandemic coming because people were just not renewing their software. Um, but I think we, within nine months or eight or ten months, we were able to recover most of that in the form of uh, transactional revenue from whether that's delivery or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so almost half of our business completely, from a revenue perspective, completely like switched from just pure software to transactional and, and that carried us through the pandemic. We, our top line didn't grow, but our, our generally speaking, our, our, well, not generally speaking, our GP did grow. So funny enough, even though, uh, you know, we were flat-ish in terms of number of customers because of the stores that were just shut down, uh, we were able to, at least for the ones that survived, at least for the ones that we worked with closely, able to support them to stay alive, to remain strong, um, and sustainable uh, throughout that period. Um, and to this day, there's still many of them are still alive. So I think that's something that was really quite a special and challenging time for us because it, it was putting us completely out of like what we imagined that we were able to do, uh, but we didn't, yeah. Yeah, sometimes there, there's there's opportunity in crisis, and it, it's it sounds like you guys not only uh, were able to do what was needed for yourselves, but I have to imagine that those fifteen thousand businesses that you were serving were very thankful in order to have some ability to transition into the online order and so forth. I would say, as a consumer myself, I was quite happy to see Beep because there's a lot of restaurants that I like and wanted that were not on any of the other delivery platforms. Um, yeah, thanks for being a customer. <laughs> <laughs> so look, looking looking forward, so like when when you start going through the, the upcoming plan of what's next, you know, how do you define success in the first place, and how do you work that definition into your uh, planning process? Whether you're doing annual plans, shorter quarterly plans, OKRs, however you guys go about it. 
Yeah, I think there's a there's a there's a very big view of success that we first and foremost take, and that success is really about where is our role in the in the in the transformation of this region. Very much again going back to the, the Chinese story, right? Like how mm-hmm. how did those companies play an important part in the transformation of the entire country? And then I think for us, success at first and foremost is making sure that we recognize our role as an enabler as an empower of small businesses of, of you know that 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 is a really critical part of nation building or region building uh and any kind of transformation that wants to take place at a macro level and so i think first and foremost that's the the criteria that i define success by it's really uh how many successful businesses um spe- specifically smes that we really you know enable um and of course from a, in a shorter term perspective that that's counted in the form of, of course, number of stores, but at the same time, the sustainability of those stores, the success of those stores. Um, you know, we we recognize in all the years of doing what we do that businesses really struggle to, to understand and have a, um, a thesis for what is a successful business model for them, especially the, you know, these are not sophisticated I mean, okay, some of them might have a Harvard MBA, but very, very rare mm. <laughs> find an SME or like that. But the majority of SME businesses kind of like run by feel. They run by mm-hmm. what they, they can see and touch. And, and the truth is that we see a massive opportunity to empower them with a, not just simply tools, but with a vision and a model for what a successful and sustainable business would look like for an SME. And I use the word sustainable because I'm a big fan of those businesses that don't expand <laughs> and remain that one awesome cafe that makes great coffee and food. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of those businesses. And at the same time, of course, you know, absolutely uh, a lot of respect for businesses who are incredibly ambitious and love to have many, many you know, outlets. Um, and for both types of businesses, I think success uh, for us is measured, sure, by the number of those stores that we support, but at the same time, by the the success and sustainability of those stores. I think COVID for us was very defining, right? It showed us mm-hmm. that um, some of these big brand names, they could just go away overnight. And that is the reality of, of the challenge of running these types of businesses and, and sustainability mm-hmm. is super important for us. No, that's 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 fantastic. I think the sustainability is 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 a key concern that the pandemic is, has highlighted as more relevant than other than ever. So when when you when you look at going after this, is is there any sort of like specific thing, whether it's an activity, a decision that you guys make as a company that you must get absolutely right so that you can maximize your odds of hitting that success factor? There's no one thing, um, but if you can, if you traced everything back, um, I, I think the the one thing that carried us through is really the the leadership of of people engaging a, a challenging problem. Uh, and I say that because you know, as leaders, we we don't always make the right decisions. And leadership is not about one thing that you get right. It, it really is about the ability to say. We're taking on this challenge, we're journeying together, and we're here to pick up, you know, where people are have made mistakes, where people have dropped the ball. We're here to support that effort. And so I think the one thing, if there's you know, if there's only one thing to engage with, it's really uh how does my leadership and how does the leadership of the people I lead um will lead the organization forward? Uh we've gone through all kinds of really difficult points in the organization and last year or so 
for the first time ever, I had to deal with the fact that half the organization wanted to leave and, and that actually happened. And, and it's, I used to say it's, it's really easy to be a leader in good times, but uh, true leadership is really tested when, when you have to lead people through difficult decisions, when you have to mm. lead people through difficult times. Uh, and we're seeing that, right? We're seeing companies having to go through that process, uh, especially in the last two years. And I think uh, moving forwards, um, to be able to take that foundation, to take the kind of clarity you have from those experiences as a map towards where we're heading, um, I think that's absolutely critical. Um, it's, 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 it's one thing to say, let's build an organization based on what MBAs tell us an organization needs. It's another thing to mm-hmm. recognize that, hey, organizations are built upon good people engaging, leading, right? And I think that's something that's... Um, yeah, we need to keep our eyes on. No, I, I, I found I find that immensely insightful. The the difficulties of going through uh, the the time period that was because you know when things are always up and to the right, it's really easy. You don't have to do a whole lot because everyone's happy. It's managing the difficult times. But I also find it interesting. You talked about uh, the leading the next set of leaders as well. So like, you're how do you approach kind of elevating that next set of leaders and bringing up people that can take charge, take on tasks, take on some level of of autonomy as well how do you how do you approach that when kind of grooming leaders you know we have a very systematic uh, it's, it's a very systems approach to us this like we we tell everyone i, I so I, I run a, a session called cultivate where uh you know every new joiner at store would turn up once a month uh well not once a month like their first month or two mm-hmm. they'll turn up to a session that i do every month um to hear about my vision for the company and and i'll talk about product vision you know platform for awesome businesses but we also talk about the company vision which is a place where people thrive and underneath that you know i'll, I'll describe how growth and you know meaningful work are key pillars of that and how everything in organization our processes, our people, our policy are designed around these ideas. And so this specific idea about growth and, and leadership or specifically the, the growth of leadership uh, is an idea we take quite seriously. So we do something quite radical, I would say, or not super radical these days, but somewhat radical in the sense that we do monthly re- monthly reflections and performance ratings across the organization. So every person gets a rating and they have to do reflections. And all of those reflections and readings get vetted by, by HR uh, and the CEO's office. So the idea here is very simply that we recognize that leadership is very simple, right? It mm. is helping someone chart a path for where they want to go um, or where we want to go and helping them get there, uh, whether that's through support, through growth, through whatever it is. Uh, and giving feedback along the way as we make that that, that journey. And, and the truth is, we're really bad at giving feedback. We're really bad at setting good goals. We're really bad at doing these somewhat very basic things um, when it comes to leading people. And we want to make sure that we know when our leaders are not very good at that stuff. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, not everyone's really, really good. And you will see that in, in these reflections. You see that in these ratings, you know, questions like, what are some things you learned this month? Uh, yeah, not much. Boom, right? And then you know, okay, someone's got to pull this guy aside and say, dude, that's not good enough, right? Or mm-hmm. what feedback do you have for, for, for you know, the person that you're leading? Yeah, they're good. Again, we're going to pull you aside, right? So, so we actually do things like this where we collect data about very important basic things that we've identified as, as critical for, for how organizational leadership needs to function. And, and we actually build processes and, and get people to pull people aside 
to to engage them on this process of getting better at leading. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one example of something we've designed into the system of the organization. And of course, you know, I I I engage leaders on on multiple fronts on different types of activity, um, more qualitative ish. But uh, yeah, I would say it's, it's a combination of that plus all the other things that we've designed into our system. No, I, I I love it. I mean, when it comes down to it, people are the number one asset. So you got to put in the work in order to try and maximize what you what you can get out of your team because it's build it's building an organization. It's building a, a everyone that's going to be revolving around whether or not you're going to hit your goals. I, I am curious though is is this entirely in house built or are you are you utilizing any sort of software in order to help you kind of keep track of all of the feedback, document it, drive the drive those those loops of all those uh touch points yeah we use a platform called bamboo for, for okay. trials. um it's not the cheapest piece of software out there but it, it works um and i mean of course we use a whole bunch of tools but in terms mm. of like the thinking behind all of this it's mostly in-house yeah Okay. Okay, cool. The, that's that's awesome. Let, let me transition into the final closing questions, the, the questions that I ask every, everyone. And so the first one is, since we were just talking about tech tools, uh, what is the one tech tool that you personally just cannot live without? It's a, it's a calendar app called Fantastical. <laughs> um, honestly, like, I don't know why people don't use it as much, but it's it's super, it's fantastic. <laughs> I, I love how the name uh, matches the description of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I use it across all platforms and, and it's like, it's got natural language processing. So I can just, yeah, it's just great. Okay, very cool. Very cool. I have not used it. So I might actually have to go out myself and give it a try. Yeah. Um, the, the last one here. If you were to talk to another startup founder that is just getting started, what would be the biggest piece of advice or the best piece of advice that you would offer? Wouldn't be the nicest, but I would say it's important to count the costs. And and the reason for that is because I think I meet so many, you know, especially new or aspiring founders that don't count the costs. Um, one of the analogies that we, we often draw here in Storehub is the difference between building an organization that resembles a family and building on a, an organization that resembles a professional sports team. And of course, the Netflix culture could popularize this concept. Mm-hmm. And there's a very vastly drastic difference between how the two mindsets operate. Um, and in the same way, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, sometimes we don't necessarily recognize the kind of journeys that we are starting out on. We you know we think this is, oh yeah, let's just go for it. Yeah, I know it's hard. Everyone tells me it's hard, but hey, what could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, the, the reality is that the journey of VC-funded scaling startups, tech startup entrepreneurs is a very different type of journey from the entrepreneur that's starting a cafe or a bakery or, or designing their Shopify store. There is a very different type of game that's being played. Mm-hmm. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't count the cost, therefore, like, you know, what it takes to build that kind of business, what it takes to go down that journey. I, I often make the, 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 I often tell people, hey, you know, um, LeBron James didn't become LeBron James from eating McDonald's, KFC, and Pizza Hut three times a day. Like there is a very intentional cost. There is a very intentional process regime that he puts himself through in his diet, in his training, in his fitness, in the type of coaches he works Mm -hmm. with. And yet we don't approach entrepreneurship, at least tech entrepreneurship for scaling VC funded startups in the same way. 
even though we should, because the kind of games that we are playing is very similar to kind of like the kind of games LeBron game LeBron has to play to get to be LeBron. Um, and so I think I realized that a lot of founders or at least aspiring founders don't realize that. And I think that's a super important piece of advice. I, I got a business coach when I was 10 people as an organization. Until today, 95% of entrepreneurs I meet don't have a business coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder like, hey, do you not realize how important it is for you to be kept accountable to someone to actually benchmark yourself against other CEOs out there, scaling startups, learning from the best. If you're trying to build something this difficult, why aren't you engaging that kind of journey? Um, so yeah, it, 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 and, it, and it, for me, after kind of observing all the patterns, it all boils down to this one thing. They don't count the costs. They don't realize that the journey they're setting out on is this kind of intensity, is this kind of demand, and it's this kind of requirement. And so best advice, please, please, please count the costs. Yeah, it is incredibly difficult to build a startup. And once you take the venture path, the expectations are very, very high. So there's a there's an additional load of pressure that's going to sit on top of those shoulders. Now, you can, if you want to play in the NBA and you want to be like MVP, you have to count the cost and understand what does it take from, from me in order to do that. It's the regime, everything that you had mentioned. I, I, I love that insight. And I think it's something that more and more founders need to have drilled home. And it's yeah. great that you still engage with a business coach. Uh, that's fantastic. She's based out of Palo Alto, one of the best out there. Is is it a for is it one of your seed investors or is it just somebody that you, that you know? Because I, I I hear a lot of founders have close relationships with their seed with their seed investors, even when they've well outgrown that size of check when they're B round C round. Just the relationship kind of maintains, or is it just a, a connection that that's been uh, useful? So I ha- I have that relationship with my angel investors or my seed investors. Those mm-hmm. guys are some of the best mentors. I think I would say I I still you have today and friends mm. but i make a very strong distinction between that kind of relationship and a coaching relationship and the coaching relationship for me is way more intentional i i sought out a coach uh when i was 10 people i googled literally silicon valley business coach female okay. actually i wanted a female coach because yeah. i felt like i needed someone who was probably more biased towards the people organizational side of things than mm-hmm. than just the performance organizational side of things and um and that relationship has just really carried or helped me grow um, to where we are today in, in a very honest way. And she's worked not just with me, with a lot of my executives as well. Uh, and so it's just been tremendously important for us to recognize how uh, a coach approaches things differently. And so, yeah, that's something that I just wanted to, to do. Very cool. This is the, that's a, that's a great point to close on. I, I want to give you a huge thank you, Wei Hong, for be, for being on the podcast. Uh, there's so many things to unpack. I know I'm going to listen to it many times over. Uh, so much insight. I, I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Really, really happy to be on the show as well. Awesome. Thank you. All right, that wraps it up for another fantastic episode of The Sea of Startups. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It's the best way for us to get discovered and to have these startup stories reach a broader audience. If you have any suggestions or would like to get in touch, you can email me at kevin at indelible.vc. 
As always, I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin from Indelible Ventures, and this is the Sea of Startups.